Hey, it's Joyce. Every week, I have the chance to chat with an interesting, inspiring human and to share that conversation with you. Join me as I walk and talk with entrepreneurs, adventurers, and all sorts of people who are working hard to empower women and make the world a better place. Now listen, this is not some highly polished, formally produced podcast. It's just two humans out for a walk with the chance to learn from each other. So lace up your sneakers, head out the door, and join us. Hey, everyone. Joyce here, welcoming you to today's Walk and Talk that is going to be one of my favorites, I have no doubt. We have with us today Dr. Ellen Langer, who is the author of more than 200 research papers, 13 books, including the international bestseller Mindfulness, The Power of Mindful Learning, and most recently, her new book, The Mindful Body, Thinking Our Way to Chronic Health. Dr. Langer has received numerous awards and honors, and she is widely known as the mother of mindfulness. She was also the first woman ever tenured in the psychology department at Harvard, which is where she still teaches. Dr. Langer, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Joyce. Thank you for having me. So I really want to get into the book and the research and the lessons, but for people who are not familiar with you and your work, can you share just a little bit of your journey into this connection between mind and body? Uh, yes. I actually had started, the book started off as a memoir, The Mindful Body, and then became whatever it is now. So there are lots of personal stories there. One of them is particularly relevant to what you're asking me. So I was married when I was very young. I was 19 going on 40, and my then husband and I went to Paris uh, for our honeymoon. And we go to eat, and I ordered this mixed grill. On the plate was pancreas. He was more worldly than I. I asked him which one was the pancreas. He pointed to one of the items. I'm a big eater. I eat everything, and I'm excited, having a wonderful time, but now the moment of decision. Could I eat the pancreas? I had to because now I was a married woman. You know, I was all grown <laughs> now up. Now you're a grown up. <laughs> exactly. And so I start eating it, and I literally become sick to my stomach. And, you know, I, and I say really quite literally. He starts laughing, and I said, what are you laughing about? He said, that's chicken. You ate the pancreas a while ago. Okay, so uh, clearly it was my thoughts that were making me sick. And then I have another pancreas story. I don't know how many people have more than one pancreas story, but I have two. So my mother, many years later, um, had breast cancer, and the cancer had metastasized to her pancreas, which essentially is the end game. And then magically it disappeared, and the medical world couldn't explain it. So then I developed a theory that could explain both of these, um, and this is the uh, the theory of mind-body unity. It used to be that people didn't even recognize that the mind and the body were uh, related. Now most people talk about a mind-body connection. I'm not talking about a connection. I'm saying it's to our great advantage to see it as a single unit. Mind and body are one. What that means is every thought you have will affect your body. Um, and um, then the thoughts we can have go far beyond what most of us presume. You know, there are all sorts of possibilities that uh, can present themselves. Uh, if you read the book, you'll see lots of our research that can help make this clearer. The original study 
that we did, uh, I think many people might know of it only because it was uh, represented in The Simpsons Go to Havana. <laughs> so it's out there. But <laughs> which, this, which is, that's how you know you've really arrived on the cultural I, scene, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and so what we did was we retrofitted a retreat to 20 years earlier and had elderly men live there as if they were their younger selves. So they talked about all sorts of past events always in the present tense. All right. Everything said now was then. As a result of this, in less than a week, what we found was their vision improved, their hearing improved, their memory, their strength, and they looked noticeably younger. And all of those without any medical intervention. Um, so now we have many, many new studies that I report in the book. One um, that uh, people who are walking might find interesting, which is a study we did with chambermaids. So the first thing we asked chambermaids, how much exercise do you get? And they say they don't get any exercise, which is bizarre, right? Uh, but that's because they saw exercise, according to the Surgeon General, as what you do after work. And after work, they're just too tired. So we take half of these women, randomly choose them, and they're in the group that we're going to teach that your work is exercise. You know, making a bed is like working on this machine at the gym and so on. So now we have two groups of chambermaids, one that realizes that their work is exercise and the other doesn't have this realization. We take many, many measures. And when we're finished with the study, we want to make sure that there's no difference in how hard they're working, how much they're eating, that the only thing as far as we could tell that was different was this group now saw their work as exercise. As a result of that change in their mindset, they lost weight. There was a change, a decrease in waist to hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy a walk because there are many other um, uh, gains to walking and uh, it's good to be outside and so on. But um, this suggests that even something like um, the things that usually occur because of exercise might be able to be available to us even without exercise. Let me tell you one or two of the newer studies, and there are many in this book. Um, we take people who have type 2 diabetes, and um, they come to the lab, we take all sorts of measures, and then what we do is we're going to ask them to play computer games. The reason will be clear in a moment. And to change the game they're playing every 15 minutes or so. That's just to ensure that they'll look at the clock. For a third of the people, for a third of the people, the clock is going twice as fast as real time. For a third of the people, it's going half as fast as real time. For a third of the people, it's real time. What we find is that blood sugar level follows perceived time, what that clock tells them, rather than real time. Let me just give you one more and then we'll go to something else if you ask me to. Um, we did a study with wound healing. So now it would have been more dramatic if I could create a giant wound, but I don't want to hurt people. And even if I did, I don't think that the review committee would let me do the study. So it's a minor wound, but it's a wound nonetheless. And again, we're using these crazy clocks. So you have this wound, you're in front of a clock, the clock is going twice as fast, half as fast, or real time. And what we find is that the wound heals based on perceived time, based on clock time, not real time. 
which again suggests that for many of us suffering from whatever we're suffering from, perhaps can heal much sooner than we currently think that we can. You get to talk so there, now, Joy. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many questions. Let me start with uh, probably the biggie, which you may not have a ready answer for, but how? Why? How does it yeah. work? No, of course. You know, it's very funny. There was an article written about my work that was um, the magazine, the front page of the magazine section of the New York Times years ago. And everybody there asked me the same question. They wanted, well, what's really going on? And all I kept explaining to them, you don't ask what's going on when it's one thing. You know, mind and body are one. So you, know, you don't need to know what's going on physiologically. But of course, there's something going on. But the point is that it's all happening in some sense simultaneously. Otherwise, you have the problem, how do you get from this fuzzy thing called a thought to something material, the body, which is why you asked the question. Mm -hmm. So um, the answer is I don't need to answer it uh, because it's not causal. It's not I think this thought and then that sets off this process, it sets off that process, and so on. And you know, by accepting this mind-body unity, um, you don't have to know anything about uh, neuroscience that's going on. All you need to know is that the amount of control you have over your health and well-being is enormous. And we have indications of this already. I mean, most people know about placebos, which I think are probably our strongest medicine. Right? So you take this nothing, a pill that by definition is inert, and, but it has to be given to you by a doctor. And then magically you get better. So it's not the pill what's making you better. You're making yourself better. And my life's work in some sense has been to try to bring this control to people more directly. And uh, there are ways uh, that I outline in the book to make that happen. But there, there's something else that I talk about in the book that also speaks to this mind-body unity. And that's what I call the borderline effect. You know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> When before you get diagnosed for whatever you have, one has, there are always people, you know, whatever number. So let's say to have the disease, you have to score a 40, okay, whatever that means. There are some people um, who get uh, a 41. Or let's, we'll make it, if you get a lower number, you don't have a disease. So some people get a 39, some get a 40. Nobody would believe that there's a meaningful difference. You don't have to know anything about statistics between 39 and 40 or where do I have They're just, they're, they're the same, essentially. Right. All right. Yet, some of the people who, um, who get the higher number are going to be told they have the disease and those who get the lower number don't have the disease. So we follow these people over time and what happens is those who are told they get the disease get the disease. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think an easy way of understanding this is um, let's take an IQ test. So in the distant past, when somebody got a 69, they were called retarded. I, I don't know what the people would call today. It may be cognitively deficient. It doesn't matter. The point is they're in trouble. So those who get a 69 are in trouble. Those who get a 70 don't. Imagine you're filling out the test and you sneeze and so you misread the question. You know, there's no difference. But when you're told or, and your family believes and friends that you have this mental um, 
problem, it becomes self-fulfilling. So people treat you differently, you treat yourself differently, you don't engage in things that are now seemingly beyond your capability. And so what I'm saying, even with our physical health, um, it often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in the same way. So let's dial it back yeah. And it's also, I yeah. can't imagine with some of this, hopefully we'll get to some of the easier things because when you're taking a walk, <laughs> I don't know that it's, it's easy to digest some of this, but I hope so because I think that um, it's actually very important. No, I actually think it's one of the easiest times. Uh, one of the benefits of listening while you're walking, your brain is working really well and people tend to be less distracted. So I'm all about it. But that said, I want to start with the really fundamental of this mind-body unity because while you articulate it and make it sound very simple and obvious, I think it's more difficult for us to embrace that the reality of that because of all of the cultural messages that we've all received around how these are kind of different things you've got your thoughts and you've got your body how do we yeah. begin to look at our unified system through that lens well for one thing and you know, most people at some point or the other is stress and stress is psychological and when you're stressed, your blood pressure is increasing, your pulse, heart rate, what have you. And we've all had that experience. This is how you can explain it. You know, you're walking, you're taking your walk now, and a leaf blows in your face. And at first you're startled because you don't know what it is. And again, your physiology complies. Um, I, and as I said, that everybody knows about placebos. I think, I don't know that I agree that it's hard for people to accept this. I think it's it's so exciting that um, it can be embraced immediately and then tested. You know that um, any time, as with my example with um, that piece of chicken that I thought was pancreas. Mm -hmm. And where does the traditional medical community kind of come out of this, well, this or come is, at this question. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I should go back a few steps because you introduced me as the mother of mindfulness and people need to understand that uh, mindfulness is I study. It has nothing to do with meditation. It's a simple process of noticing things. Now people don't realize that they're mindless almost all the time because when you're not there, you're not there to know you're not there. But the research says most of us are like robots almost all the time. And that comes from our uh, being taught to be sure of things. And we can't be sure of anything because everything is changing. So uncertainty should be the rule. And so, for example, um, this is going to come to your question, but when I forget your question, please, please remind me. This is what do doctors think about all of this? Yeah, yeah. All right. So... Um, I often ask people, I'll ask you, Joyce, how much is one in one? One in one is two. Right. That's what we've all been taught. In fact, that's the thing we're most certain of. But it turns out one in one is not always two. If you add one wad of chewing gum plus one wad of chewing gum, one plus one is one. You add one pile of laundry plus one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. One cloud plus one cloud, one, and so on. In the real world, it's probably not two as often as it is. Mm -hmm. 
So what <laughs> I'm, I'm suggesting is that the way we've all been taught is to think we know. And if we can unteach ourselves that and accept that we don't know, and, if, and you don't have to feel bad about not knowing because nobody knows, all right? Then you pay attention, you sit up, you enjoy things that before you were just sort of going through the motions while you were doing it. So when I when I give some of these talks on on all of this, um, and then I find out there are a lot of physicians in the in the audience, you know, I I worry in the same way you the reason you asked me the question, and it turns out they're relieved. They know they don't know, they can't mm. know. Now what people don't understand is when you do an experiment, all the experiment can show you is that if you were to do the same thing again, you know, test this medicine on whatever, for example, that it's probably going to lead to the same effect. That's translated in textbooks, in talks um, by parents and so on as absolutes. My life changed many years ago. I was at this horse event and this man asked me, could I watch his horse because he was going to get his horse a hot dog. Well, you know, I, I'm Harvard, nobody knows better as well, maybe, but not better than I. Horses don't eat meat. He comes back with the hot dog and the horse ate it. And that's when I knew everything I thought I knew could be wrong. And for me, a world of possibility. And so, and it's those possibilities that I've explored in lots of the research. Um, so the, it's funny the because that doctors know they don't know and they don't mind being told that they don't know. The, uh, the expression, it's a world of possibilities, uh, is one of, actually one of my favorite expressions. But I've never, honestly, I've never really thought about it in the context of in order to embrace the world of possibilities, we do have to let go of our preconceived beliefs. Right. I mean, you know, even just the, if you just consider again, <clears throat> excuse me, the original um, counterclockwise study, who would have thought that vision of an elderly man could improve or hearing, you know, that um, most, most people wouldn't even test this because they'd assume, no, you get older, things only get worse. And all of my work says, no, it just doesn't have to be that way. Even with vision for for the rest of us, you know, I'm strange. I'm, I'm sure your listeners can appreciate that already. I go to the doctor and I look at that Snelling eye chart and most people just, you know, they point to the letter, you say the letter. Uh, but for me, the first thing I notice is, hey, wait a second. These letters are getting progressively smaller. That's setting it up so I'm supposed to expect that I'm not going to be able to see. So we do another study where we turn it around, where the letters get progressively larger. Now the expectation is soon you will be able to see. And when we change the expectation, people, it turns out, can see lots of the things that they couldn't see before. So, you know, we're given a medical number and we act as if, you know, uh, I, in fact, I did this thing the other day in the health class. I asked, does anybody here know their cholesterol level? And one woman, you know, raises her hand and I said, yes, and, and what is it? And she said, and then I said to her, and when did you get it measured? She said, six months ago. And I said, oh, and you haven't eaten or exercised since? You know, at which point she's supposed to laugh. Joyce, you're supposed to laugh. You know, the point is that we hold things still, even though they're varying. 
And it's in noticing the ways things vary that it turns out we have um, a great deal of control over even chronic illnesses. And we've studied uh, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, chronic pain, arthritis, you know, a host of disorders where all we do is make people pay attention, ask people to pay attention to the natural ways their symptoms vary. Sometimes they're a little better, sometimes a little worse. Even though most people think it's steady state, it's always awful, and if it changes, it's only going to get worse. But when you see that it's better, we do this over just two weeks, and we ask them why. So what happens is by trying to figure out why I don't have that pain right now, <clears throat> for example, you're doing a mindful search. And that mindfulness itself, based on years, decades of research that I've done, is good for your health. And I think that you're much more likely to find a solution if you look for it. You know, if you were out on the, de I don't know, you wouldn't be with a horse in the desert, <laughs> wherever you'd be, and you're, you're totally lost, and there's no food, there's nothing to feed the horse, because all you have are hot dogs with you, <laughs> right? So if we weren't so sure that horses don't eat meat, oh, you'd give the horse a hot dog. Yeah, the horse is hungry and enough. And see what happens. Exactly. And then you'd be out of the woods, back to your house, happy and healthy. <laughs> so, You know, I in a, a microcosm of my personal experience on this topic, I have uh, for a few years wrestling, been wrestling with a back problem. Mm -hmm. And I finally found a practitioner who believes very strongly in the mind-body connection. And my mother, who's a former professional dancer, she has always said she has a bad back. And my sister mm -hmm. has a bad back, right? So you define yourself in that way. And I said yeah. to this practitioner early in my experience with him, maybe I just have a bad back. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he actually <laughs> said... Yep. He said, I actually think that your back is the only thing that's working for you. You're making it do too much. That's why it's angry. You have other things going on. And it's, he, gosh, he was so smart kind of around how it is all connected, the mind-body connection, and then connections within your body. I mean, that's the other piece of it, right? Like it's, as you say, it's one thing. It's all right. connected. It's one thing, not even connected. It's just one thing. Right. You know, if you have a disorder, and it could have been your back, but it could be somebody, something where the medical world says, we have no cure for this. That doesn't mean there is no cure. It just means the medical world hasn't found one, right? And so um, I think, you know, and let me do a little thought experiment. So you're an Olympic athlete taking care of yourself, running, walking, uh, outside, eating well, so on and so forth, versus you're a couch potato. And you don't get any exercise and, you know, you're smoking and you can make it as bad as you want. All right. And now if both people were um, uh, susceptible, you know, were uh, given the COVID virus, who would get sick? And even if you thought both would get it, who would have a worse case of it? I can't help but think that whenever anything is wrong with us, with us, we always have the ability to make the rest of us healthier. And I think that that will always help with uh, whatever the problem is. It goes to something that I, I say often, which is uh, that I do personally, which is ask myself, what can I do? 
Right, exactly. You spend so much time saying, what are my limitations? What can't I do? Yeah. But if you ask and yourself, what can you do, then there's a path forward. Exactly. I write about that not with respect to health, but just with respect to life, you know, where people ask themselves, can I do it? Well, if you've never done it before, the only answer is probably going to be no. But if instead of asking, can I, you substitute it with, how can I do this? Mm -hmm. And then you immediately start, and if this doesn't work, well, then you try something else and so on. And when we change from can I to how do I, um, many of the things that we initially thought were impossible are actually uh, well within our control. So forgive me, because I don't have a memory of you discussing this in the book, but my mind goes to the question of, of fear. Yeah. Do you think well, that we don't, that we're reluctant to ask ourselves those kinds of questions? Because once we do, we set ourselves up for the possibility of failure and disappointment. Yeah. So we're yeah. safer just saying I can't, or focusing on the th our limitations, etc. Because if you open up your mind to the possibilities, you also open up the opportunity to fail. Yeah, um, but, um, well, okay, I discuss this in the book in, in subtle other ways, you know, about stress, for instance, and fear, stress, these are psychological concepts. And what happens is you have a mindless view of something that you're predicting will occur, and mm -hmm. that if it occurs, it's going to be awful. And it turns out, and there's no time now for me to persuade people, but prediction is an illusion. You can predict for the large group, and, and any random Mercedes is more likely to start when you turn the key than a random, um, I don't know, let's say used car that's not a Mercedes. But would you bet your whole life savings that this particular Mercedes would start? No. You can never predict for the individual. When you're afraid, when you're stressed, you're saying that this thing, you're predicting this thing will happen. And if you simply ask yourself, what are three, four reasons that it might not happen? All of a sudden, you start to calm down. Now, if you said, let's make believe it does happen, how is that an advantage? And what people don't recognize often enough is that events don't cause us to be afraid or stressed. What causes our fear and stress are the ways we understand those events. And so if you look at it in a, a more mindful way, how is it good, how is it bad, how is it irrelevant, you know, so on and so forth, then you're much less likely to be stressed. And if people paid attention to the things they were afraid of that they had to actually do, they would probably find out that most, you know, most of the things we're worried about never happen. And so the more you're aware that it might not even happen, you immediately become less afraid. Last, and it can only because of the time now, um, imagine that you were completely successful at everything you did. There'd be no there there. You know, the example I often use about playing golf. If every time you played golf, you got a hole in one, it, it wouldn't be fun. You know, if you feel you always want to win, play tic-tac-toe against a five-year-old. And you'll know, we know we don't want that. You know, so what we have to do is not take a, a neg you know, um, what we, a momentary failure as, as if this speaks volumes to how it's going to unfold in the future. And we instead see it as a step along the way to success, knowing that 
as soon as we've mastered it, we become mindless. You know, so you're either perfectly mindless or imperfect, uh, perfectly mindless or imperfectly mindful. In other words, we don't really want uh, to be able to do everything with such ease. The challenge is good for us. And, um, you know, if you've bitten off more than you can chew, then start again with a smaller piece, a smaller bite. And start again by asking yourself, what can I do? Or where do I go from here? Which is all around, like, just opening your mind to kind of where you started this conversation, which is not only do we not necessarily know it all, but we're way better off if we accept the fact that we don't. It's sort of embrace, not even accept, embrace the fact that we don't, right? Exactly. Exactly, because when we're mindfully aware, we're noticing things, the neurons are firing, and it's literally and figuratively enlivening. It's in the essence of engagement. You feel good. And there are so few things that come to mind that feel good and are good for you. And this is one of them. Not only do you feel good and is it good for your health, you, you look different. You know, you become... Um, you light up in some ways. So people, and we have hard data for this, people see you as more authentic and charismatic. Not only that, when you do whatever you're doing mindfully as we study it, it actually leaves its imprint on what you're doing. So it has so many positive effects and it's so easy that it's hard for me to see why anybody would hesitate. So I want to just talk for a moment about the book. So in my personal experience and what I enjoy are Mm -hmm. books that hit a balance between interesting anecdotal stories that illustrate a point, hard science that supports it, and tactical things that I can put into play and practice myself. And if you put it through a lens of those three things, many books don't actually hit them. Um, But this is my shout out for your new book because you really did hit all of those for me. So for anybody who wants to dig deeper into these concepts, the book again is The Mindful Body, Thinking Our Way to Chronic Health, which I feel like we barely even got to talk about. So we would need, you know, another hour just to talk about the book and what it does. Um, but I, I'm hoping that this conversation is enough of an introduction to uh, really your work, your message, your mission. Uh, for anybody who is looking for the book, it is at, I assume, all the local bookstores as well as everywhere online. I assume so. I hope so. <laughs> as well as on your website. There's a link to the book and some more background about about you. We will link all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your wisdom, your work, uh, and engaging in a little bit of, of back and forth and satisfying some of my curiosity around all of this. Thank you, Joy. We should go on another walk together. I would love that. Have a really nice day. Thank you for joining us for today's Walk and Talk. Catch new episodes featuring inspiring guests every week and all the places podcasts live. Until then, I wish you happy trails.